Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. This is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome, his three kidney transplants, and all his other medical and health experiences related to those things. Last week, we talked about life immediately after Ari's third kidney transplant. We talked about how the double-blind anonymous donor process worked and how it worked for us Mm -hmm. and for Ari. And we also talked about Ari moving on after that third transplant from being a disabled person on dialysis and going back to school and being an undergrad in his 30s. And I think Mm -hmm. we should pick up the story there this week. Okay. One of the things we talked about was that intensity you had about every assignment, about that feeling like, I've got to get the most out of this, I've got to do the best I can, and that feeling of emergency, sort of. Yeah. I've got to go as far as I can in my education because the other two kidneys failed so quickly, I just want to get as far as I can before this one fails. Right. So my first question is, does that feeling go away, or does it decrescendo at all? Did you ever get to the point where you were confident this kidney's going to last and I am going to graduate. You know, no, not really. Um, that was pretty much always with me through finishing my undergrad and then on into grad school even, where I was always kind of freaked out about that at some level. I would say that by now it has faded, but I still have that feeling. And so at that time, even just because we're still just within a year or two or three of the transplant, I was nervous about it a lot. I really wanted it to work, but I had all these um, landmarks from previous transplants. Well, at this point, I had managed to do this. At this point, I had managed to do that. Well, the previous transplants didn't last longer than X number of years, you know, two. And... When I was within that window, it was like, well, who knows? You know, they could just fail. It could just fail. It was a, I had sleepy kidney. It was a high-risk kidney. It could, anything could happen. I don't know. And I was really worried about that. And so, as discussed previously, I panicked a lot, <laughs> um, flipped out a lot. And it was a thing, too, where just, like, even if hypothetically the transplant had failed, like, right before finals in a, a given semester... You know, my grades were always very high, in part because um, I was panicking about everything, and so I was working really extra hard, and in part because I was I was good at it. I still would have passed my classes, probably with a pretty high grade, but I also had this whole other thing where I'm a perfectionist. I want to do well, and so, like, that wasn't good enough, and so I would be sort of panicking about both things. Like, on the one hand, I just want to graduate. It doesn't matter, but on the other hand... It mattered to me that I graduated with good grades or that I finished classes or passed classes with really good grades. So no, it never really went away. Did you feel like you had to prove yourself? Yeah, to everybody. You know, ultimately, I I felt like I, I had to prove it to myself that I could actually do that. But as is so often true with things like that, I projected that onto everybody else. You know, the people I was going to school with largely had no idea about what was going on. Or, you know, a couple of people had heard I had a transplant because I said something, but they didn't know. You know, I've spent episodes and episodes telling this lengthy story about all of these things that have happened to me and that I have done and that I've experienced as a result of my health. And you know somebody for a few months or a year or so, it's really hard to really grasp what a big deal that is. And so... They didn't need something proved to them. Like, I wanted to prove something to them, but I don't know what that was. It was really I wanted to prove to myself. I wanted to prove to my family that I always had been good at this, even though I had not been able to finish a degree yet, because I really still felt like a failure um, for all the times I had had to drop out of school. Like, a lot, a lot. That was a really big feeling I had. Um, I wanted to prove myself to you. There was a lot of... Uh, feeling that I had about being worthy or something, um, which, you know, is, is interesting. You were very cool about that. You wanted me to have a degree. You wanted to be married to somebody who had a degree. But that wasn't like, if I didn't have a degree, you were going to go, well, this is over. <laughs> um, <laughs> that wasn't going to happen. And I, I knew that. I felt safe and comfortable in that. But 
I also wanted to like feel good enough. So again, it all, all of those things are true. I wanted to prove myself to, like I said, everybody, but all of that was an extension and a projection of my needing to prove to myself that I actually could pass college classes and graduate. All that time and all those times that you did have to drop out or where you couldn't attend classes because of your illness. Right. Was there also that fear that it wasn't just the illness right now that the excuse is gone? <laughs> uh, oh, my goodness. So much. Yeah. I really. Uh, yeah. I, <laughs> it's hard for me to sort of answer that. Um well, that was a thing I struggled with for a really, really long time. And I, I hope I don't struggle with it anymore. It's probably easier now that I guess I feel like I have accomplished some things. But yeah, I, I think we maybe spoke earlier about this feeling that I had of um, while dialysis sucks and I don't ever want to do it, it's stable. It's stable at terrible, but it's stable. When I was on dialysis, there were very few surprises. There could have been. I could have had infections or a couple of other serious complications, but I didn't. And so every time I was on dialysis, I was stable. Like, really stable at 30-40% of my potential or what I wanted to be, but stable. And it was safe. It wasn't, you know, actually safe, but emotionally it was safe because I knew what was going to happen. It was predictable. And as a perfectionist, there wasn't anything to try or stretch myself to that I might fail at. It's easy to get an A in being a dialysis patient. So easy. It's so easy. And so then you think, okay, I'm really good at this. Great. And I didn't have pressures to do anything. I had a literal doctor's note. I didn't have to go to school because I just couldn't. I didn't have to have any kind of high intensity or high pressure job because I just couldn't. Sometimes I actually did do jobs, and just the fact that I was doing it was, like, amazing. You know, good for me. And, you know, that's a hard thing to admit here. It was a really hard thing for me to admit to myself. It took a long time to kind of reach that conclusion that there were times when, you know, when I had a transplant where I would kind of flutter and go, like, well, I don't know. Because now you feel like you really have to prove it. Right. Then I have to prove that I am, like a smart person or good at things or I, I don't know. You know, I, I've been told often as a kid, oh, you're a smart kid. Oh, great. And when you're a healthy person, that that's easy to do. But when you're not, it's not. It becomes very, very difficult. And when you have a transplant, there are unpredictable things. You can get sick often and that just comes up and then you're like really sick suddenly for a while and then you're dealing with that. You have the normal ups and downs of life that like everybody else does, except they're actually more severe sometimes. And on top of that, I had the intense fear that not only might I just get sick or something like you do with a transplant, that any time I got sick, it might be, oh, I'm not just sick. Transplant is failing. Doom, 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 doom. So this is a lot of just sort of scattered thoughts, I suppose, at this point. I had had that feeling for a really, really long time, going back to maybe even pre-second transplant, when I started realizing, well, I'm on dialysis and this is terrible, but it's stable and I've got that and it's okay. And so any time like the idea of transplant came up, I would kind of go like, yay, but a part of me would be like, oh no, I have to leave my terrible cocoon that is at least known terrible. And I, I have come to feel after this, that that moment of hesitation, which was about a lot of things, but that moment of hesitation that I had when they called me for that third transplant, where I said, no, I can't, I'm going to do this other thing. I'm supposed to go to Australia. I'm supposed to get married soon. I cannot have a transplant right now. I'll just take the next one. Um, that that was sort of the last hurrah of that part of me that wanted to just stay safe and stable on dialysis and not risk the adventurousness, I suppose, or actual normality of a transplant. It was also another way to say that it was me definitively choosing not to live that way, but to live more positively and actively. I also think you take a lot of responsibility as if it's a personal failing 
for the effects of your disease. Yeah. You had to drop out of college twice because your transplant failed. Mm-hmm. But you will also treat that as though you had to drop out of college because you're a burnout or something. Right. You don't let yourself off the hook because of the disease. Mm-hmm. And in the back of your mind, it's, oh, maybe I'm not good at college. Right. Maybe if I'd been better at college, my kidney would have not stopped me. Right. And I think that's probably a thing that's not just unique to you. Oh, sure. And I also think this is the other side, the bad side of those inspirational memes and stories <laughs> that people send around. Oh, this person had eight heart transplants and terrible rare forms of cancer, <laughs> and they went and got their PhD at age 17 and ran five marathons and th- that kind of thing. And often it's like, well, what's your excuse, you mm-hmm. able-bodied person? Because, you know, this pathetic creature managed to surpass you. It's both demeaning to the person while using them as mm-hmm, mm-hmm. inspirational fodder. Absolutely. But I think it also doesn't acknowledge the reality of the fact that <laughs> you couldn't have just gone to college while you were on dialysis. No. You were exhausted physically and mentally you weren't at the top of your game. You wouldn't have been able to internalize and take advantage of the education and do things with it. Right. But I think that you didn't feel that way a lot of the time. Yeah, I. this actually reminds me of a thing because I certainly felt that and I know that some people said things, you know, understandably. Uh, which reinforced my own sort of feelings of guilt. Said what? Well, this the, during the time period I'm thinking of, which is um, after my first transplant failed, and I was working at Westview High School, and I was on dialysis. There were a number of people, maybe not that many, but I would encounter people who would say like, well, why aren't you just back in school now instead of doing this? Like, I wasn't making a lot of money. I was making some. And I would try to explain through dialysis brain. Well, no, I don't. I can't actually do that. You know, I can do this, but I can't do that. And even trying to say it now doesn't make sense. But I feel like that's just the number one struggle sometimes that I watch people with chronic illness or disability try to explain to people, I can do this, but not that. Right. That someone on the outside can't get how things are different. Yeah. And the thing is that, especially when you're experiencing it, it's really hard to explain. And so Years later, which is now, but also before now, I could sort of look at that situation more objectively and finally explain what I knew to be true then, which was that, yes, I was there teaching, and I did go basically every day. There were also a number of times where I had to call and say, listen, I actually cannot come in. There was one time, uh, there's a thing that happens sometimes to people with Alport syndrome where they get uh, corneal abrasions. And I went through a period of like a year or two where I got them very, very frequently. And I was essentially blind because I had to have a patch over one eye or two for a week. (laughs) And that would just happen. And like, well, I can't drive. And what am I doing at school if I can't see, you know? And so that would happen. Um, There would be some problem with dialysis sometimes. And then far more commonly, I... I was there. I was at school, working, teaching. And again, I really did do quite a bit of teaching, and I'm very proud of the teaching I did. But I also know there were a lot of times that I was sitting in rehearsal, and sometimes I would sort of unzone out and realize, I have no idea what just happened. I'm supposed to be listening critically to give comments, to give tips, to point out mistakes, to suggest strategies. And I have no clue what happened. And usually that happened when the band director was leading rehearsal. And so he was making comments to the whole band and the percussion section. You know, they were fine without me. But there were plenty of times that that happened where I was running rehearsal. And I would say, okay, start at letter whatever, play this section, and I will listen. And they would play. And then I would realize, wait, it's silent, which means they just stopped because they played the section I asked them to play. And I would cover. Sometimes I would say, I'm sorry, I zoned out. And sometimes I would just say, you know what, do that again. I need to hear it again. Because that's a thing that at least used to happen to me on dialysis. And if I had been in college, I would have missed a lot of school. And if my brain had just shut off, I have, I was going to say, I have no idea how I would have done. I would not have done well. I knew at the time that I would not have done well. 
part of what enabled me to be relatively successful or as successful as I was then was that it was about using information and skills that I had and that I had really well and really strongly. And I wasn't really doing new things with them. I was doing things that I had done a lot already for a while. And school is about gaining new information, gaining new skills, and using old skills in new ways. And that's frustrating because I really did want to be in school. I mean, I love teaching at Westview. I'm really glad that I did. It's a major part of my like professional and musical history. But if I could have been in school, I really would have preferred that. And so all of this is to say, like, I needed to not be on dialysis in order to go to school. And like, I know that now, and I've known that for a number of years now, and I knew that then, but like, I really know it now. (laughs) And I say all of this because even knowing all of that, there were a lot of times I still sometimes felt like, yeah, but maybe I could just be in school. Maybe I could just have done better. And sometimes that was because of outside influences or comments or pressures, and more often it was because of internal things, where I was used to being good at things and wanted to be good at things. And maybe part of that was because I knew that there was that little voice in the back of my head sometimes saying, it's easier not to do this, you you have a doctor's note. And I know that I definitively, over and over, made choices against that voice in my head, that it was a very rare occurrence that I would say, okay, I'll take my doctor's note. But because every once in a very long while, I would take the doctor's note, I was afraid that I was taking it all the time, just regularly. And that if I just never did, maybe I could just be amazing and graduate from college and just have done it. Even though I know that unfortunately, that's that's not true. So that was just a really, it was a struggle back and forth in my head for a really really, really a long time. So what did it feel like when you realized after getting this third transplant, after being at City College, when you finally realized, I'm going to graduate from college? Well, that was insane. Yeah, it, it actually kind of sneaked up on me because I thought it was going to take four semesters, two full years. I, I did some summer classes also, but I thought it was going to take that long. And so at the beginning of that second year, I went to see you know, one of the people who checks your credits. And it turned out that I had like looked at a number incorrectly or something and that I was on track to graduate that semester. As long as I did a couple of things, I had to like test out of giving a speech and some stuff like that. But so I went and did all of that stuff. And then I was like, I was wandering around in kind of a haze for like a week going, this is it. That can't be true. I thought it was going to be a whole other six months before I was feeling this way. And then it it was. And I kept plugging along and, you know, still freaking out because, oh, my goodness, this is the last semester. And then I just kept doing it. And my health kept stable. And I finished all my classes. You know, I turned in my application for graduation. And it was accepted. And I got an invitation to commencement. And I was floored and really, really stoked. And then I was embarrassed about being stoked because, well, it's just undergrad, you know, but I don't care. Yay. So it was a lot of emotions. I was really, really excited. I, you were very excited. Uh, I was. I went to the mid-year commencement, which was in, I think, February. And then I was also invited to the big spring commencement, which I happily attended. It turned out to be like three or four separate ceremonies. There was an honors convocation because... I was graduating with, I think, a four-point. So I was graduating summa cum laude, which I was very excited about and a little bit embarrassed because I knew how freaked out I had been about every little missed point on a, a test or something. And then like, okay, but here I got all the A's. And then a general commencement, which was the whole giant college. And my parents flew out, which was really nice. And of course, you were there for all of them. So you went to like four or five ARI commencements that year. <laughs> very, very It was loyally. wonderful. It was nice to see you finally get this thing that you wanted so much and that had been out of reach for so long. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that you proved it to yourself and maybe to some other people that, oh, yeah, once you get the transplant, you can succeed. 
You can do all the things that you always hoped you could do, and you can do them really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I did do really well. Uh, I was thinking about this before we started recording that, you know, I, I did graduate summa cum laude. I did get several top honors in my department, some certain like small scholarships and stuff that they give to like the top student and things. And I'm the kind of person who really wants to get those things, but doesn't want to talk about them. So here I'm talking about them because it's sort of important to this aspect of the narrative that like, yeah, I really can do well at that when all I needed was to have a working kidney. But at the time, it wasn't like, I want to get this so I can tell everybody. It was like, I want to get this because it means something and so I can put it on my resume because that's a good thing. And that was it. <laughs> but I did that and it was awesome. It was just really, really great. And to bring this back to, I guess, more of the kidney medical side. Sure. How was the kidney doing during those college years? Just fine. I think I maybe briefly mentioned last time, there were a couple of extra things we did just to really, really make sure. They were pretty cutting edge. They were all phoresis-based. So this sort of took me back to the previous transplant, like mentally or emotionally, where I had had that super weird thing where they like use infrared light. So they did something kind of like that. They did a couple of other things to mess with immune memory. This was more refined than it had been before. It was something that I believe my doctor had worked on in developing and in refining, and it seemed to have really helped. It's also one of those things where they talked about, okay, so we're going to mess with your immune memory. We're going to make your immune system forget a bunch of things so that you know it's better on the kidney. And I said, okay, cool, that's really good. And you say that's good for the transplant, fantastic. Does this mean I should get maybe some of my immunizations again? Does this mean, I assume, that I will get flus that I have already had or something like that? And there was this long pause where they said, maybe? And I realized, oh, okay, we're really, this is new. They don't quite know. And that's really exciting and a little bit scary. And I'm not sure that they still know. They said, we're going to wait and see. And I haven't had any extra immunizations I have been, you know, extra sick, but not extra sick for a transplant patient. So hard to say. But the good news is my transplant was fine, fine, fine. We did, like I said, do some extra things like that. And so I was at the hospital more frequently, but I was so happy to do that just to make sure everything was good. I had several biopsies that were not like, oh my goodness, we need to make sure nothing's wrong, but just, hey, let's make sure. Let's just check in because I really was excited about where I was and what was going on. And I wanted to take zero, zero chances. And so did they. So in sum, yeah, it was great. And this is a leading question. Yes. Were there any other side effects that were going on during that time? Well, fast forward a couple of years from when I finished at City College. After I graduated there, I went to graduate school so that I could get certified as a teacher and, you know, go be a teacher. And I went to teacher's college at Columbia University, which is right near where we had been living and is a really, really good school. And I loved it. And around the time that I was getting ready to graduate from there, I started having extremely serious pain in my feet and it hurt to walk and it felt like things were hot and biting my toes and I couldn't even have blankets on my on my feet at night it was really terrible and I finally after I don't know a few days of this just going oh maybe my my feet aren't cramping or something because I'd had foot cramps in the past from dialysis mostly I very painfully walked to my local doctor's office and she took a look and pretty quickly said oh you have gout and I was like gout and I know nothing about gout at that point. I say, like, isn't that an old person's thing? Like, what's the deal with that? Whenever I tell people you have gout, everybody says that. It's sort of this weird, apparently very amusing disease. Right, right. It has this weird place in, not even popular culture, I guess, but just if you've heard of it, it's that like, oh, isn't that like an old rich person's thing? And I was like, well, I'm neither, so no. Um <laughs> 
So after asking her that, she asked me to see a specialist, so I did. Um, gout is a, a disease wherein uric acid forms crystals in your joints, usually in your feet, maybe in your knees, and those crystals are hard and sharp, and so they are painful. And you take certain medications to dissolve them. The elevated uh, uric acid levels are caused by diet usually, and then sometimes certain medications can also lead to that. It's the kind of thing that is, at least sometimes, um, comorbid, which just means like another medical problem that goes along with transplants and or kidney disease, I guess. Interestingly, one of the things that you often take to get rid of gout is a low-level steroid like prednisone, which is one of the standard drugs that I have taken as an immunosuppressant forever, like every time I've had a transplant. And so my doctor suggested that perhaps this is why I was getting gout only now and not so much earlier when it would have been more likely for me to have it. And I thought, well, that's not that comforting, but sort of. So... <laughs> I had this old person's disease, and I was able to take some medication specifically for that and then increase my prednisone dose sometimes. This is a thing that I remember after you got gout, because one of the times you were having an outbreak of gout, I don't know if you call it an outbreak or something else, when it was intense. I call it a gout break. A gout break, haha. You and your doctor decided, oh, I'll just double my prednisone dosage for a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. And... You neglected to tell me that you had decided to do that. <laughs> right. And we talked about this in a previous episode, but prednisone is a steroid. It affects your mood. It yes. can make a person much more aggressive and angry mm -hmm. and moody. Yes. And after about a week of feeling like, man, Ari is in a mood for <laughs> no reason that I can see, you casually mentioned that you had doubled your dose of steroids to deal with gout. And we had a conversation about how when you decide to take increased amounts of steroids, it might be nice to let the person you're living with know that you're planning to do that. Yeah, and I, of course, thought I had, but had not told you. Especially the buildup of taking it for days on end was the real problem there. And it was really not good. Mostly, though, I ended up over time getting that under control with diet. So there's a lot of foods that... I either can't eat anymore or severely limit. I, I'm kind of amused that basically all the issues I have, there's some dietary restriction that goes with it. And trying to juggle all of them together means ultimately I'm, I'm balancing between this diet and that diet. So I have to limit the following things. Uh, red meat, fish, and other seafood, especially shellfish. Alcohol, especially wine, which wasn't a problem because I didn't drink. And things like high fructose corn syrup and, to a lesser extent, caffeine. The hardest one of those things for me, by far, was red meat. Because it's delicious. Because it's delicious. And I had always been a big red meat person. For years as a kid, you'd ask me what my favorite food was, and I would say, steak. You know, and I was like a little seven-year-old or something. <laughs> and um, I really really loved it. And I had to kind of cut it out almost entirely. And that was a real challenge. But once I did that and was able to limit all of those things, I stopped having red, angry, hot, super, super tender, painful toes. And I could walk like a normal person again, which was really good. One more thing. Yeah, it was one more thing. Exactly. So then after your big victory of graduating from City College, like you said, you went right into grad school and earning your master's degree so you could teach. Yeah. And you were going to teacher's college. Mm hmm I think this might be a short answer, but yeah. how did that go, How, especially as relates to your health? <laughs> awesome. Non-related to my health, it was just great. It was a fantastic education. I met a bunch of great people. My professors were wonderful. I learned a ton of stuff. It was the kind of educational experience that hit me at exactly the right point in my life. I, I just really loved it. Health-wise, my health was stable. It was good. Interestingly, though, I, I would say because of some of the ways we investigated things, because it was grad school, because it's a lot more discussion-based and reading-based. That was the time when I started 
to really kind of accept a lot of things about myself that we've talked about on this podcast. The idea that I have disabilities, the idea that I'm a chronically ill person, the idea that having had all of these medical issues in my life as traumas or whatever else I should call them, bumps in the road or worse, had, like it or not, at least partially defined me as a person and had affected the way that I interact with other people, just person to person, but as a teacher, as a student. It was a place where I I did a lot of sort of thinking about that in the context of um, music education, but also in the context of myself, and um, kind of really accepted a lot more of those things about myself. I kind of opened myself up to those ideas. Uh, that was not why I went to grad school, and it it would it would have probably happened in some ways anyway, just because of timing. It, it was also a thing where early on, while I was at at Teachers College, my time with this transplanted kidney surpassed the longest time I had had with either of the previous two kidneys. And then I kept being stable. You know, first it was, well, I've had this kidney for two years. Now I've had it for two and a half. Now I've had it for three. Now I've had it for three and a half. Now I've had it for four years. And it's all fine. And I didn't quite make it to two and a half with the longest previous transplant. And so just because of that, it started to become more real that I'm a person who has a stable transplant. And that's a big deal, and it was very exciting, but it also really started to change my perspective, shift away from that terror of, oh my God, what's going to happen? Am I going to lose this? To, this is actually what my life is, and thus, because this is what my life is, this is what my life has been. And so it was just a really positive experience in a lot of ways. Because at some point, your dream of being a music teacher and all the things that you want go from being this hypothetical someday if I ever have a kidney, someday if the stars align, right, to a thing that you're actively planning for and just seems normal. Right. And part of the course of the life you're living and what you're doing, and it's going to happen in the next year. Right. Yeah, it went from someday to next year. It went from someday to at the end of the summer. You know, the the time when we started signing up for student teaching was a really bizarre time for me. I was so incredibly excited and stoked about it. Like, so excited. I was thrilled. And I got a really cool opportunity to be a student teacher with this really, really great teacher who I really respect, and I'm really glad that I got to work with him, and I didn't think that I would. And I was, like, over the moon about all of that. And at the same time, there's this part of me going, this this was never going to happen. You know, I remember thinking about how it was going to happen when I was at Lawrence. I remember thinking about how it was going to happen when I was at Central Washington and sort of making plans and dreams and hopes at each of those places that I never even got close to. And here it was like, so in September when you go out to student teach, so next month when you go out to student teach, so tomorrow when you go out to student teach, so now you're student teaching, let's talk about what happened today in class. Okay, so you just finished a semester of student teaching. Let's reflect on that and think about your next semester of student teaching. And that whole time, like, I was doing the work. I was experiencing it. I was enjoying it. You know, love, laughter, tears, pain, and all those things were happening. And I'm also, like, freaking out with sort of joy and almost confusion. Like, wait, this is actually happening. This is the time. This was never, ever going to happen. It was supposed to happen then. It was supposed to happen then. And then it totally didn't. And I had plans for it. And it just like never. And I've already done a bunch. And then I was doing the second semester. And I was like going to job interviews and working on my resume and making phone calls about that. And the whole time kind of going, what is happening? Like, this isn't supposed to happen to me (laughs) because it never does. And then, you know, it it eventually did sort of normalize. Like, yeah, it never does, except it actually totally does. And it's been happening for a while. And I'm doing this. You know, I'm going to job fairs and I'm talking to people about my experience and my knowledge. And I'm writing long papers about this and putting together a packet for graduation. It was cool. And you got your master's degree. I did. And you got certified as a teacher. I did. 
and you got a job as a teacher. I did. And I know this might be a little silly, but I'm your wife and I love you and it's my podcast, so indulge me. (laughs) I want you to brag a little bit. You've been a teacher now for several years. Mm -hmm. You've had your own program Mm -hmm. in Brooklyn. Yeah. Please talk about some of the amazing things that you've done as a teacher. (laughs) Talk about VH1. Uh, Okay. So I'm in my third year teaching at a middle school, high school in Brooklyn, New York. I started a brand new kind of music program there. My first year, I convinced them that we should do kind of a a pilot band program as um, sort of a mini elective for about 20 select kids. And that went really well. I got a bunch of kids who were really into it and invested in learning instruments. They were kids ranging in age from sixth grade through 12th grade. At the end of that year, then, uh, after a lot of work, I put together a grant application with the VH1 Save the Music Foundation, which was accepted. And so we won a VH1 Save the Music grant, which provided us with $30,000 worth of instruments. It was about 55 instruments, a, a lot of instruments. And so then last year, all of the 10th graders at my school took band and about half of the ninth graders took band the other half took art and this year again half of our ninth graders take band about half of our 10th graders take band because the same kids who took band last year are now in their second year also last year all of our eighth graders took band and this year i've moved to the sixth grade team so all of our sixth graders are taking band everybody's learning an instrument everybody's learning to read music or continuing their skills in those areas it's it's been a really good time you know obviously there's a lot of struggles with it because a lot of my kids come from programs where they have not had any music classes before so not that they don't understand this concept but that usually you would teach a kid in, say, second grade, the difference between high and low and loud and soft. And those are the kind of things that we as adults sort of take for granted, partly because we actually learned it in school. It's kind of like learning that yellow and blue make green. So uh, my kids understand that, but might not know that terminology in a very weird way. And we start from there, and then we end the year knowing how to play five, six, seven notes on an instrument, a bunch of rhythms, how to read music, and play some songs, you know, more than hot cross buns. With some extra help, we did a pep rally last spring, and I had every instrument in use with 8th graders, ninth graders, 10th graders, all joining together to play Let's Go Band, that staple of pet band literature, as well as a very short simplified arrangement I did of um, Jump On It by the Sugar Hill Gang, which was very popular and was a good time. And this year we're doing more things. Uh, I have kids, you know, writing some simple things for their own instruments. I have kids working on their own projects in that way. You know, we're playing in tune, we're learning notes, we're reading music and having a good time. It's, it's pretty awesome. And I'm so proud of you and so happy for you. Thank you. And all the things that you've done, not just since you've gotten the transplant, because you were awesome before that, but Uh. once that obstacle was removed. And I want to move from there into some listener mail that we got. Okay. We got a really nice email from Allison. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to read all of it on the podcast because reading a bunch of very nice compliments (laughs) makes me uncomfortable. But thank you to Allison for the really wonderful things that she wrote. And she ended with a really great question that I want to use. Okay. So she writes, as someone who's dealt with some heavy stuff in their life, I've been grateful for support and guidance from a licensed therapist and a compassionate doctor for keeping my emotional and mental health in check. I'm curious what has helped both of you take care of yourselves mentally and emotionally during the course of your various medical adventures. (laughs) Uh, I would say that I've talked about this some in the past on the podcast, There. There was a time where I had like mandated I have to go to a therapist time, and that was really, really helpful. After your first transplant. After failed. my first transplant failed, yes. And it, it really was very helpful in all the ways that therapy is helpful. And I almost, I was going to say, I almost wish it wasn't called therapy, maybe counseling or just talking to somebody. <laughs> While I was at City College, 
I started really thinking, you know, I am freaking out about this stuff a lot, and it would be really nice to talk to somebody, and that's kind of hard because we don't really have any money to pay for that. It's expensive, sometimes for good reason. And it turned out that the psychology department had a program for their doctoral students to give supervised therapy to people who qualified. And people who qualified were basically people who had interesting enough problems, I guess, or issues that they wanted to talk about that were also not so severe that you had to have like a licensed therapist. So you had to fit within that mark. And I think there was maybe some kind of financial proof of I can't afford this, which basically meant you're a student at City College. So I went and I applied for that program, which was a really simple application, and um, I was accepted. And so I I had counseling sessions, I think once and a couple times, twice a week for about a year while I was a student at City College. And then for maybe a year more after that, I was able to continue going. So a couple of years or so. And it was really, really helpful. So when I say that my time at Teachers College was a time when I started to realize a lot of things about myself and open myself up to that, a lot of that was because of timeline. A lot of that was because of things and ways we were discussing those things in grad school. But also, I was seeing a therapist, and that gave me a place to kind of work things out additionally. And that was incredibly helpful. Really helped me examine how I viewed myself and the disease. It gave me a chance to examine how I viewed how my disease and I interacted with the world and other people and how I felt about other people feeling about me and my disease and how that affected things. Um, this starts to feel recursive, but it was really, really useful. And that therapy that you were able to get at City College was really, it was awesome. It helped you a lot. Yeah. And we wouldn't have been able to afford it any other way. No. And I'm really grateful for Allison's question because I think that it's good to say getting professional help is good. Mm -hmm. And it gives us a chance to say we were able to find an option when we really couldn't afford anything else that helped you. Right. And for other people, there may be options like that. Check out if a local university needs to have its grad students practice <laughs> yeah. therapy and have a clinical practice because they might and there might be options. You know, I think we ended up paying 10 or 20 bucks a month as a token amount. At so that, some point. Yeah, not at first. So that you could keep going. But it was the only affordable option and it was so helpful and so necessary. Mm -hmm. And I really encourage people to go talk to somebody mm -hmm. and figure out some kind of financial way to make it work. And there might be options like that. There are also those options, you know, people go to dental schools to get dental work done, or there are hairdressing schools if you want to get your hair done. Yeah. There are schools for psychology grad students, and they need people to yes. talk to, too. Yeah, it's it's a really great option. And, you know, lest anybody think that I'm just talking to some person, they were supervised. Occasionally, one of the professors who was, you know, an actual certified person would come in and observe part of the session. And then I know that this is a thing that I had to agree to, that my therapist, the student, would discuss my case with her supervisor to make sure that, you know, she was doing the right things and stuff like that. So it wasn't just, here's some person who has some training. It was, it was well supervised and it was a good program in that way. Also, <laughs> in terms of support network, you know, that is a thing that doctors and nurses check in with you about when you have chronic disease, which is good, at least in my experience, that, that that's a thing they do. I hope that they do, because if they don't, they're skipping a really important piece. Obviously, a big piece of my support network for the last 10 or so years has been you, and that's been a really, really, really big and very important piece of that. That's made so much of this easier, better, manageable, and not just manageable, but like really fun sometimes. <laughs> um, but I am a person who tends to have a small support network in general because I have, I tend to be introverted and have a small friends group. It's interesting because I, I've heard from several people since we started doing the podcast that like, oh, I would have 
helped. I would have been there to listen if you had just reached out. And, you know, I know that, but I didn't always know that at the time. And that's, that's good to hear. And I think that that's probably true for people who are not me as well. But, you know, I leaned a lot on my parents. And I think you heard that from them when we spoke to them. But really, it's sort of those, those three things that I have an amazing partner. I have these really cool parents. I have some cool friends. Uh, I guess I'm saying four things. And then when I needed it, when I needed extra support, I went and saw a professional. And also, since Allison asked about both of us, I will say that at different times in my life, not related to your disease, I've spoken to a professional to get help with stuff, and it was incredibly valuable yeah. to me. I will also say that probably I go it alone more than I should, <laughs> especially as regards your health. And that's a lesson that I'm learning as I go along. Mm -hmm. And there might be a time when I want to talk to somebody again. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's a thing that if that's something that you feel like you should do ever, I encourage anybody listening, if you feel that, do it because it is helpful and it can really be an incredible lifting of a burden. And you can't, sometimes you can't just go it alone or you can't just rely on friends and family that there are benefits to having a person who's actually a professional work something out with you. Mm -hmm. I, I would also say just sort of from observing that the partner of a chronically ill person or some, maybe the caregiver. So I can't speak to this as much from a parent's perspective, but especially the partner you know, you want to lean on me sometimes when things are stressful, which is understandable, and I want to be there for you. But by the nature of the situation, I abandon you. And it's not on purpose. It's not what I want to do. But if I'm having some serious problem, that means probably my mind is like not available, um, or I'm actually physically ill or asleep or unconscious or something. And so you actually can't talk to me. I'm not actually there. And so, you know, you are a person who tends to go it alone. And then by, like I said, the nature of this situation, you have been forced to go it alone more often also. And, you know, that's terrible. <laughs> it's not something that I want, of course, and I know it's not something you want. And so I guess I'm saying it's another argument for find some other resource. If it's a professional, great that's what they're for. That's their job. If it's, you know, family and friends, then also great. But that's a really difficult thing. You know, you've talked about that, I think, a little bit on the podcast before, but I don't want to minimize it. I, I want to actually call attention to it, that being the partner of somebody who's chronically ill, even I, as a chronically ill person, can tell is comes with extra challenges. And this is one of the things that I think often gets ignored or glossed over or forgotten about, that you want to be able to rely on your partner. And the chronically ill person is ill. And so they are not somebody that you can necessarily rely on in that moment when you need them the most, because they're sort of the problem. You are not the problem. Well, no, but they're the, the focus of or the cause of your stress in a way, or their disease is the cause of your stress, but it is taking them out of the equation in terms of your support network. And I think that's super, super important to call attention to, which is why I'm doing that. And I could fill a whole podcast talking about the incredible friends who've been there for us along the way and have been there for me. Mm -hmm. I try to, during certain stories, highlight that, but I could never highlight that enough and still have time to talk about anything else. Right. But we have had incredible friends along the way, and I have had incredible friends to help out emotionally. Yeah. yeah. But I guess I appreciate that you noticed that, but I hope you don't worry about it too much. I, I don't know if I worry about it too much or too little. <laughs> well, I think I'm going to awkwardly transition <laughs> away from that because okay. the, the timer on the podcast is still going and ask you my last question, which is, how are you feeling this week? <laughs> I was very positive last week, and I thought things were going better, and then I had to take a sick day this week. Uh, this was actually a week that a lot of teachers took sick days. So I took sick day at the very beginning of November and a sick day at the very end of November. And I'm feeling better since then, but uh, I've been having still a cough, still cold symptoms, still stuffed up, and 
weirdly a little bit of gastrointestinal stuff, which is never fun and maybe more information that people are expecting right now. So not awesome, but I think as usual, like, I wish it were better, but it could be way, 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 way worse. Just because I still enjoy bragging about you as a teacher and <laughs> because I think this story is cute, can you tell about um, the follow-up from the substitute lesson you had this week? Sure. So when I'm gone, the kids have a, a packet that they have to fill out. It's usually about some composer and there's some questions and a word search and stuff. And this week, it was about Johann Sebastian Bach. And when I return from being sick, then I like to do a little bit of a follow-up where I just say, hey, what do you remember about this person? And we talk about it a little bit and I fill in some gaps and correct some errors in the the packet that they have because they're not always awesome. And Bach is a super important composer in Western music history. Uh, he's really foundational to a lot of things. And uh, he also has some weird things in his life that kids always find fascinating. He had a lot of kids. He married his cousin, you know, and they always go, what? And I say, well, you could have read that. It was on the paper. But anyway, uh, so we talked about that. Whenever we do this kind of follow-up, some of the kids are like, Ugh, I just want to play my instrument. And I'm happy to oblige. It's usually like maybe 10 minutes max that we talk about it. I will usually say, I know this isn't maybe your bag, but this guy's really important. And if you want to be educated about music, you need to know that he's important. You need to know that it's pronounced Bach and not Batch. You need to know that you call him Bach and not Sebastian or something, because that's easier to remember. It's just Bach. And they go, okay, and then we play our instruments. So we, I was doing that this week, and then I was saying, have a good weekend, have a good weekend to all the kids as they were leaving through the door. And one of my very shy clarinet players um, sort of smiled me at me as she went out the door, and then she turned back and she said, thanks for telling us about Bach. I actually thought it was really interesting. And, you know, I, <laughs> my heart really warmed there because, you know, it's nice to know there are still little nerds in school who are just fascinated about whatever. And um, in this case, it was Bach. And sometimes it really just takes one kid going, I liked that, that one thing that like, I think is super cool. And other kids are like, I guess we're doing this because it's school. And so she made my day. And it was was really nice. And with that, I think we're going to wrap up this episode. Okay. If you want to send a question or a comment to the KidneyCast, we are kidneycast at gmail.com. We really like getting your emails and the questions that you guys ask sometimes really help me flesh out questions that I ask Ari in other mm -hmm. episodes, even if I don't use them in the listener mail segment. And you guys come up with things that remind me, oh, we haven't talked about that. <laughs> so thank you to Allison. Thank you to everybody who writes in. We are also on Twitter at KidneyCast or Facebook, facebook.com slash KidneyCast. All of the episodes are available on iTunes and Stitcher and my website, lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. Ari, thank you so much for chatting with me this week. Thank you. And as always, thank you to everybody who listens to the KidneyCast. <laughs>